and welcome to this new episode of the View from the Lab podcast, evolving science education in every episode. I'm your host, Andy Woods. On today's podcast, I'm talking to Murray Morrison from EdTech Pioneer Tassamai to discover his views on science education and how best to improve learning in the STEM subjects. Murray has had an interesting, non-conventional start to his career in EdTech and has had wide-ranging experiences at a high level in both sports and music and has had extensive experience in tutoring science and maths to students across London before he came up with the idea for Tassamai. All of these opportunities have influenced his approach to learning, especially in science, which led to his decision to start up his own company. He built Tassamai to run as an adaptive learning programme that could be available to students at a lower cost than traditional one-to-one tutoring, helping a wider range of pupils outside of their school teaching. I hope you'll take some time out of your day to enjoy this informative EdTech chat. You may have heard of Tassamai because of the work we've been doing with them this term. Uh, they've developed some lovely diagnostic snapshot reports, which you may well have used in your schools. And I wanted to catch up with Mar- Murray to talk about um, how Tassamai began, how it all, all came about, but also his thoughts on EdTech and how that fits in with the teaching and learning landscape of 2020 and beyond. Hello, Murray. Hi, Andy. Thanks very much for having me. That's okay. Um, I want to dig in first of all to talk to you about your kind of unique journey through your career and some of the things you did that were not really related, I suppose, to science education in a very direct way. Because I know you've done some very um, uh, cool sporting things and you're into your music as well. Could you tell me a bit about kind of your, um, not that you're old now, but your younger days and what you got up to in those those early part of your career? What were you doing uh, before Tassamai? Um, yeah, of course, it, it's um, probably wishful thinking to call it a career at, at all or a career path, um, as my parents would certainly say I was um, I was avoiding doing anything like a real job or real career um, because I was pursuing my hobbies, I suppose, which were, were music and sport. And um, uh, I ventured into the world of professional music. I, I came up to London, actually, to go to, to a conservatoire to study music as a postgraduate. Uh, and I was very obsessed with jazz music and playing and performing and, and improvising. Uh, I'm not sure I really had the talent to stick as a professional musician for long. Um, likewise with, with the sport. And, and, um, uh, and I supplemented my income, uh, such as it was as a musician, by doing some peripatetic teaching. Um, so uh, it was during that time, I suppose, that... Uh, I learned a lot about the nature of practice and the nature of, of how people learn through other mediums. But um, because I found myself doing a lot of work with students, uh, helping them with their maths, with their science, uh, teaching and tutoring in various different uh, settings, um, it became obvious to me that the, that the way that I could help these students best was not so much with teaching them the ins and outs of the content and the equations, but really teaching them how to practice and how to practice towards mastery. Um, so many of the techniques that I had myself tackled as a musician or as an athlete, learning, practicing, getting, getting the kind of coaching support I had, uh, was really transferable, I felt, to the medium of, of, of learning, revising, uh, and acquiring knowledge. And it was through those kinds of practices that these, these ideas started to formalize and, and became, in the end, something that turned into TASMI as, as a software. And what, what do you think the kind of the crossovers are between when you were, you were tutoring your maths and your science 
um, and say the music, for example, what are the, what are the kind of key components that you think were transferable about things you do in music to gain uh, mastery, for want of a better word, and things you might do in maybe say like a physics curriculum, for example, how did you kind of divide those kind of bits in your mind to, to kind of come up with your own like, vision of, of, of what is the most appropriate and, and most effective way to learn something? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it, it might sound like a, a fairly superficial analogy to say, oh, well, you can, you can practice like a musician, you can practice like an athlete. Actually, the parallels are really strong and really, I believe, informative to, to the whole pedagogical method. Um, in music, for example, and, and as I mentioned before, I was a jazz musician. In jazz, the musicians uh, that really excel practice their scales they practice patterns and arpeggios, um, and they, they do so religiously. They practice uh, to learn the chord structures of, of, of the tunes they're going to play, and they learn them in every single key, inside out and back to front. And it's an extremely rigorous method of practicing the basics that then allow them ultimately to genuinely improvise and extemporize. Now, if you take that same model and you look at it in a, in a Bloom's taxonomy sense or, or any other um, you come to that same kind of conclusion that we all know to be true in our teaching, that, of course, if students don't know the basic equations of, uh, you know, distance, speed and time, or they don't know their units, they don't know those basic building blocks, the foundations upon which they can apply that knowledge or synthesize those ideas and combine ideas from different disciplines, let alone their ability to express their knowledge um, and deal with problem solving, is really compromised. If you don't really embed those basic concepts and play with them, practice them in different combinations, uh, you're on shaky ground and it's very then it's then very hard to advance that teaching and learning for any learner. There's another aspect too, I think, which is really important. And the same applies, of course, in, in a physical sort of, uh, you know, sporting context. Um, the, the students I worked with often were, were extremely, were in very difficult circumstances. Often they were um, for health reasons or behavioural reasons, confined to home, or they, they couldn't really engage in learning in the normal way. And the, the major problem they had was confidence. Um, and if they didn't have confidence um, in themselves, to be good learners, it's very hard to get through to them with the content itself. Um, and through this kind of uh, instill, installation of, uh, or instilling, I should say, of regular deliberate practice, that was where I found my students gained confidence so much more effectively than any kind of glossing over and sort of saying, come on, you can do it. Instead, if you gave students a means by which to practice daily um, and do so in a way that they could feel their incremental gains coming, then they had a kind of gain in confidence that allowed them to, to pick up that momentum themselves and, and run with it. Uh, and again, that kind of deliberate practice of the basics is where students, I believe, really find that confidence. Um, so... Uh, it, it seemed to really work for me and, and for my students and, and get results. And that's when I knew I was really onto something, I suppose. And did you find, obviously tutoring, you must have um, spoken and, and taught to many different types of students. Was there kind of any common themes in terms of, did, did it matter to you in a sense that where the starting point was or, or that may, as you say, maybe the negative behaviour? Was there any particular reason ever that, that um, whatever the barrier might have been to them at the time, that you couldn't overcome that by this approach of, looking at the fundamental units of a subject and then building up from there is is, is that um was it kind of common across lots of different groups or did it was there ever kind of learners you felt that were kind of unreachable particularly i never found a learner that i 
genuinely felt was unreachable. Obviously, it sounds like a crass generalization to say, no, the, the common problems are common to all, but they were common to all that I ever encountered. And I worked with many hundreds of students, probably in the thousands. Um, I don't recall one that we couldn't get through to with this kind of approach. Um, the common theme, I really think, was, as I said, confidence. Um, and where I felt other tutors or other teachers may have um, may have been slightly misguided in their approach to tackling that lack of confidence was um, you, I really felt that you, you tackle that by giving them the means to practice and the means to prove to themselves that they can learn rather than taking the approach which says we're going to pat you on the back and say, come on, you can do it. You, you, you know, you're a rock star. You're going to be great. And then, you know, if, if you fill, if you fill students with false confidence, then you, you're setting yourself up for failure, I believe, because when they then encounter a, a problem down the line, they feel like perhaps they've been misled into believing they could do something that they, they feel then they couldn't. Through approaching this lack of confidence um, with uh, really well-differentiated practice that students can then feel the change from couldn't do it to getting it to mastered it um, that that was the thing that really seemed to break through for students in 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 all kinds of settings um, and i really did work with students in in the widest range of contexts imaginable from from you know from chelsea to to um you know students in in real deprivation um, uh, and it really uh, seemed to be a very common theme that by giving students a, a means to practice uh, their knowledge and get quick feedback and quick correction and the chance to then embed that, those corrections, it really got through to them. And did you kind of, uh, in your tutoring world, did you, did you have the opportunity? I suppose, were you teaching, were you teaching jazz? Were you teaching science? Were you teaching maths? Were you teaching um, uh, your, your sporting endeavours at the same time, if you sort of mean? And were you seeing those common themes going across those those different um, disciplines? Or did you kind of box it in a little bit and, you know, th- you know this year I'll do mainly uh, music? <laughs> how did it work? Did, it, did you see those common themes coming across as you were doing the tutoring during that time? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, I came up to London about 2000, just after, uh, or 2001, just after I finished my uh, undergraduate degrees. And um, I was in London to be a musician. So I was at Conservatoire doing postgraduate for a couple of years. Um, So I was a professional musician at that time. And I started teaching uh, in a a, a school, which is sort of um, a very small school. and tutoring a little bit in the evenings just to supplement income. So uh, that was a time when I was working as a professional musician, practicing six hours a day for myself and then doing the the teaching work around that. Um, And I taught a little bit of music. I have to say, I I didn't like teaching music because uh, I suppose I loved it too much and uh, I I was a bit prima donna-ish about it. My my favourite thing actually to teach is maths. I love teaching maths. but I taught uh, three sciences and maths. My degree was in engineering, so I had that background. Um, yeah, and at that time as well, I started to get serious about sport. I was never going to be, um, you know, a top performer sports-wise, but I really loved it, and I felt I needed a kind of, a, I suppose, a physical outlet as well. When, when teaching and music is is very uh, confined, indoorsy kind of work. Uh, and so all those things were going on at once between between then and 2012, which is when I kind of I'd 
finished, I'd sort of quit being a musician and I'd, and I'd finished my sort of sporting career path at the, at the 2012 Olympics. And only at that point did I then say, right, TASMA is the thing I'm going to do now full, full time and build what I've been doing in the classroom up to that point, those sort of 12 years into something that's a formalized software. I was going to ask you about as listening to you talking about your 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 six hours of practice, and one of the things that um, I always found um, both with my own children and also the children children I taught in schools was that um, habit of doing lots of practice. Now, I suspect, obviously, if you love jazz, it's it's, it's an easier win to do practice because you you kind of enjoy it. But how do we help students get into that that zone of of, of kind of deliberate practice? Um, when they don't have a passion for uh, chemical bonding or, uh, you know, photosynthesis. Are there any kind of things that you've learned either from Tassamai or from, you know, obviously, time tutoring before that, that helped students to try and de- kind of develop that practice muscle so it becomes embedded and, in a sense, easier every day or every, you know, week, weekday? How, how, did you, how did you feel about that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you, if, if, you, if you're in love with the content itself, then that makes, then you're lucky and that makes it easy. But with the best will in the world, for most people, that's only going to be one or two subjects where the content itself motivates them to learn. So you might love um, Lord of the Flies and you're going to really study that, that literature text. Uh, but if you, if you hate Inspector Calls, uh, then it's, it's not really the, the, you know, loving the content is not the thing to rely on. I think the key thing, and we, we all talk about metacognition, of course, um, I think the key thing is to make the focus of your practice, the witnessing, if you like, of the change in yourself. If you, uh, and I used to encourage, particularly, uh, I used to encourage my students to do this. If you can keep a sort of a learning diary, or you can keep some kind of log that says day by day or week by week, how you got on in any kind of micro practice, micro quizzing, or how you felt about your relationship with that subject at the time, your, your level of confidence, your level of motivation, or any kind of anecdotal evidence you can gather as a student. You know, oh, I remembered that thing in class and I felt good about it. Any kind of work you can do to witness your progression through the learning, that if that is the focus of the, the practice, that can be the motivation to practice, to feel um, what in, you know, I suppose people, gym bunnies will always talk about their gains, you know, those gains you can make incrementally are really important. It's one of the reasons I've been obsessed for years of building this thing within TASMA, which we call the tree, this way of visualizing, um, in at one glance, where you stand in your practice, in your learning, and how over time that's growing, how you can see your, the map of your knowledge sort of blossoming and becoming, and coming to fruition. Uh, I think that's, that's key to the motivation of practice. Yeah, and viewing, um, as you say, look, looking back, it's hard to hard to know the gains you've made until you do the big test, if you see what I mean. But I think we need maybe list, list, list achievement points, I suppose, along the way um, uh, to, to, to gain that, that satisfaction. And I see that with my own daughter who struggles a little bit with maths and she really needs those those little bits of information that she's done a little bit more, she's got a little bit better. And I think looking back on that is really important for students. Well, certainly. And we know this as, as parents. I mean, I have a... Have a... I almost forgotten how old he is, six-year-old son. Um, and uh, it's, it's, that, it's that thing of, uh, you know, trying to embrace uh, topics or, or areas of studies where, where students are struggling. You know, if, if my son is learning a piece of music or learning to tell the time, day one, he might find it really stressful, really unpleasant. And rather than uh, avoid that, to kind of lean into it, I suppose, to use a kind of expression at the time, not to make it something that's uh, that's confrontational and stressful, but just to say, 
okay, let's just like make a mental note of this. This thing we're doing now, you found you're finding really hard. Let's say you're you're at a two out of ten on this, and it's difficult. Tomorrow, when we try it again, you'll be at three. You'll be at four. And, and sure enough, you know, a, a week later, or if you're if you're doing this sort of micro testing events, of course, it's never that formalized. A week later, he can tell the time, and he can see, oh, it's two thirty. You can recall that that point you said. Well, just remember, ten days ago we were at two out of ten, and now you're at seven out of ten. So even in a very casual, informal way, we know as parents that's how we we all do this. Um, that same thing can be applied to to learning in the classroom context, provided you've got a mechanism that can witness exactly where a student is in their learning and practice at any point, and report that back to the student, so they can they can themselves. Uh, be on that journey to see to see how their practice has driven their improvement. Thank you. Um, I was thinking about um, your kind of journey from like the beginning of TASM, I guess, having all this knowledge of being a, t- a teacher and a tutor and how it kind of jumped from, I guess, um, a time before, um, you might remind me about the kind of the history of TASMI, whether you know whether we had apps when you started or um, whether it was just you, know, you created a website. Uh, what was that kind of jump? I guess you needed a few other people on the, on the team to get started when you were trying to create these this new platform. Was it something you just started yourself um, and then built uh, people uh, along the way, so to speak? Or was it just, boom, I've got an idea, I'm just going to uh, trial it out and I'm going to learn how to do it myself? Uh, yeah, it was, it's, a, it's a long and painful story. We need a 10-part podcast okay. that no, no one will be interested in. But um, the, the truth is, uh, yeah, it's always been a massive passion project for me. Um, okay. In the context of tutoring particularly, I've, I personally have I really struggled with the whole concept of it. I think it's uh, a, a worryingly unequal kind of uh, level of intervention, you know, that really people who can afford to pay tutors, you know, crazy amounts of money can get that that advantage for their children that others can't access. And I find that troubling. I used the money I charged my clients, the ones I did charge money to, to essentially fund the building of this program in order to allow me to provide a level of support for students who couldn't afford tuition. So it was, um, you know, it sounds very grandiose to sort of describe it as a Robin Hood kind of approach, but I really felt that there was a level of inequity here that I wanted to address and that I felt formalizing this method through software would, would address. I, not, to, not to mention, of course, that with the best will in the world, an, an hour of my time, I can do a certain amount for a student. But actually, you, you're, you're almost wasting your money. Like if you, if you could use TASMI to practice your learning through the week, you'd need, you'd need far less of my time or any other person's time to, to help you with the, with the points of difficulty. So... I built TASMI really as a, as a method for helping my students and so I could have more students um, and they, they sort of essentially have to pay less for, for, the, for the intervention. And it started out as a, as a card game. Um, it started out as something we did with flashcards and a, and a system. It's, it's essentially, you know, a, a very advanced lightness system, a sort of pan-dimensional lightness system, if you like, um, where the skill in developing TASMI really came in in writing the content in such a way to be genuinely instructive rather than just testing. Um, it took several years and several, uh, well, an enormous amount of my own savings to get to the point where it was in any way a going concern of the business. Um, but we're, we're fortunate, I think, to have never been a, a company that took on any kind of institutional investment. We've always, we've always charged a small amount for our service and funded our growth. Um, and it took, uh, as I say, 2012 was when I sort of started doing it properly. It took until 2016 or something before we had our first member of staff and our first school. Um, and now uh, another sort of four years later, we're at sort of five, 600 schools, 
I think uh, 150, 200,000 students will be using TASMI this year, answering about 2 million questions a day at the moment, I think we're on. So it's, um, it's grown exponentially since then, but only because uh, schools realized there was something in this that, that responded to their needs. Definitely. I was going to ask you about the, um, obviously EdTech has kind of come to the forefront uh, this year, particularly for obvious reasons, but um, what are your thoughts about, um, I suppose some teachers may say, um, I haven't heard any teachers say this, but they may say, um, or they may feel a bit threatened, I suppose, by EdTech in the sense that, um, uh, yes, it's saving them time, etc. But is is there a point where um, you, you've heard from teachers that it would ever kind of take over their job. How do, how do you see the balance of like, um, say something like Tassamai versus instruction from a teacher in a kind of social classroom uh, situation? What's your thoughts on that? I think they're entirely complementary. And I remember my time teaching um, when I was doing that sort of pretty much full time, a vast proportion of my time was spent trying to figure out essentially what to do next with these individual students trying to do any kind of assessment diagnosis to plan lessons or, or interventions uh, let alone sort of setting and marking of homework um, and let alone the fact that you know it, homework wasn't done by every student so my power to help them was limited um, the first time we presented TASMI at a teacher conference uh, it was attended by hundreds of teachers and uh, somebody who was, was helping out, you know, hand out leaflets was at the back of the room. And she overheard a couple of teachers leave the room going, well, that's our job's over. <laughs> you know, it was kind of extraordinary to think teachers could react that way to it. The reality, of course, is it's been, it's been really embraced by the teaching community because rather than being something that in any way competes with the teacher for that work of instructing students, it's something that's empowering teachers in the sense that it's giving them clear diagnosis, clear data on where more help is needed. And it's saving them just unfathomable amounts of time in setting and marking of, of, of assignments, let alone the personalization, the differentiation of it. Um, meaning that you can sort of plug in and play, have to ask my set as homework for a class for a whole cohort or a whole school. Um, and you get all that time back to then plan individual interventions, put intervention groups together of students who have common weaknesses and really make a difference as a teacher and you and I both know from from our teaching experience that the thing that motivates us as people in teaching is not the admin it's making that connection with a student and changing a can't do to a can do uh, and that's what I think we facilitate. Mm. In a sense we're in a sense of teachers and learners we're we both want the same things in the sense that um, when we're looking at progress obviously the student loves to see that Obviously, as a teacher, you love to see that um, as they get as they move up the graph or whatever kind of metric you're kind of looking at. I think that's really important. Um, in terms of uh, Tassamai and um, uh, the argument about things like uh, gamification, I know you've said to me uh, before that uh, you're kind of Edwardian in your approach to education, and you're not a massive, massive fan of gamification. But we know as well, I suppose, that some kids need it to kind of motivate them a little bit. Where's a good balance, do you think? Um, I guess Tassamai is trying to strive for this in, 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 in the work you're doing, but um, is there a balance between gamification and learning and, and where, where do you see that at the moment? There certainly is a balance and I think I've fallen very much on the wrong side of it. I mean, I could admit I was wrong in the, in the early iterations of, of Tassamai, the computer, the software developer that, that helped write the, the initial code said, oh, gamification, that's where it's at, you've got to do this. I said, no, this is education. <laughs> you know, kind of, um, I have very old fashioned draconian approach to lots of aspects of teaching and learning. Um, 
And of course, if you don't have something in your app that engages learners, you're going to lose the learners that you stand most to benefit. That said, I can't stand uh, edtech or any kind of learning apps that are that that are facile that use um, the gamification aspect to diminish the educational power of their of their app. Uh, maybe can't stand is a bit strong, but I have a knee jerk reaction against it. Uh, uh, Tasmai has erred on the side of efficacy first, and that's cost us to the extent that it's sometimes been a challenge for teachers to really engage students in the platform, um, aside from making it homework and really embedding it with good implementation at their end. So we've we've been working over the last couple of years to change various aspects of the app to make it more appealing to learners, make it more accessible and digestible and, and achievable. Um, in sports psychology, sorry to refer back to all my sort of obsessions, um, but there's a very simple aspect of, of the way of the way athletes prepare and plan their work is to make everything uh, based around smart goals. That is, your goals are specific, measurable, achievable, and, and so forth. So um, we've we've moved our whole UX um, design to make the the, 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 the interaction with TASMI achievable, that you have a daily goal, a daily amount of practice, uh, and that you, when you achieve that, it's sort of encouraging you to come back tomorrow. Because ultimately, the game for students is to build that habit of learning, the habit of practice, and the gamification can really help with that, provided it doesn't undermine the educational power of the program, which is where I think a lot of things slightly fall down. Thank you. Um, how do you um, kind of respond to, it's not a criticism, but um, I guess some people think about like multiple choice questions as being superficial knowledge in a sense and like, are they really learning things or are they learning a specific response to something? Is that education? Um, I guess some people may have said that to you in the past, but um, what do you think about in terms of the the, the model of like, the multiple choice question? It's obviously very much easier to assess a, a student with quick options like that. Um, and it works much better for things like math and science and maybe some other subjects. Um, what are your thoughts on the kind of the, the format of the, the way it's been designed? I think it's um, an absolutely valid criticism, but my, my sort of counterpoint to that would be, you know, good multiple choice written well and living on a platform that knows how to deploy multiple choice and, and, and use it for adaptability can be extremely powerful. So to give an example, you know, we, we will not have multiple choice... We do have some very basic multiple choice questions that say, what's two plus two? But uh, the way way our platform uses multiple choice questions is more like, I think an example I gave you the other day was, uh, you know, the the question one might be uh, chlorine is in group and you have to say group seven. Um, If you get that wrong, the next question that will come up might say chlorine is an element in group seven. Group seven seven elements are known as the, and then you have to choose halogens. But of course the distractors might be uh, earth metals and alkali metals and noble gases. So um, with the wrong answers and right answers students give, it allows the engine, if you like, behind the scenes to really diagnose where the misconceptions are and drive the quizzing to tailor to that student's weaknesses. But more importantly than that, most of our content is just, a, most of our question content is a way of really exposing students to the to the material. So as I mentioned there, that one that says, Chlorine is in group seven is an affirmative statement that we're just sort of brainwashing them with that knowledge that they need and then asking them to apply that to something else. So it's much more about exposure to, to the knowledge and then application of it. That's what we're asking students to do as a means of getting them to engage with the text. You could look at this as being a revision guide that's been sliced into tweet-sized chunks that they have to 
read each bit. Um, but of course, the assessment part of it allows us to tailor to it. The other aspect to multiple choice as well is because you can engage with the content super quickly, you can cover a huge amount of content in a short amount of time. It means our, our, our algorithm, if you like, and our personalization is far more maneuverable than it would be if we were asking students to read chunks of text or answer in long form. And it's much more valid in terms of our ability to assess their knowledge. Um, you know, you, you fall into an, an minefield of difficulty if you're trying to assess students' knowledge through through long form answers on an edtech platform. It's much more much more challenging. I was thinking about um, the subject you started with. So, Tasma started with GCSE science, and um, obviously, people have got different perceptions of different subjects. But why do you think that science is hard? Why do you think? Or why do you think a lot of people find it hard? What is it about science? Um, specifically that makes it a challenging subject for many to kind of engage with. Um, have you got any thoughts on that? Oh, that's a good one. I, I, I do have opinions. I don't know if they're true or not. Um, but I do feel we talk about science and maths too in completely the wrong way nationally. I don't mean as a, a, in education. I mean in terms of the media, in terms of um, the way we perceive these subjects. Very few people go around in life going, oh, I can't read, <laughs> silly me. But mm. people in their droves say, oh, I don't understand, oh, I can't do maths, I can't do numbers, or I don't understand science. And we think of scientists still far too often as white men in white coats and not as being the, the, the kaleidoscope of the cross-section of society that scientists are. And of course, fundamentally, we know that science is essentially just the language of everything. Um, we are all scientists and we all do science all the time in the way that we live our lives and move our bodies and engage with the world. You know, anyone who crosses the street is doing quick calculations on velocity, speed and time as they see cars approaching and judging whether they can get across. The road. We're all doing it. Anyone who plays football is looking at, you know, the, the arc movement of a ball with force interactions and spin and judging where to meet that pass. You know, I, I used to say to my students all the time, you know, if you're any good at football, you're a brilliant physicist. If you can tie your laces, you can do things that, that engineers have, have not created the robot that can tie laces, but you can do it with your eyes closed. It's the power of, um, of, of regular practice and the power of, um, or, or rather the, the demystification of, of these sort of otherwise kind of slightly rarefied ivory tower concepts. Is, is key to letting people believe that they can do it. And I, I do think we talk about science in the wrong way and lionize it in a way we sh perhaps shouldn't because it puts an awful lot of people off. How do you think the um, uh, assessment should change maybe in the future? Obviously, we're in a, in a kind of transition period, I guess, where um, in, in the long-term future, I guess we may be moving away from the traditional paper-based exa exam style in, in terms of the way things are assess assessed. Um, what would you like to see in terms of a different assessment model maybe for science that you think might work or might um, clarify uh, or make it more engaging for students? I often thought that uh, in, a, in a funny way, just like modern foreign languages, um, science uh, teachers should be able to almost have a like a mini oral exam where you could ask kids to explain their ideas about science. Because I taught many students who actually were quite eloquent when they spoke about science or a way to solve a problem. Um, but when it came to writing it down on a piece of paper, that was a massive challenge for them. Um, how do you think like, assessment models might change um, or, or should change really, um, thinking about um, science as a, not just an academic pursuit, but also a way to 
uh, prepare people for, as you say, future work and, and future ways of thinking. Is, it, is there a better way we can kind of encourage that through assessment, do you think? I think those are great ideas. I, I don't know what the best way is. I th- I, I, I'm not against exams, I have to say. Uh, like, you, like you mentioned before, I'm slightly Edwardian in my thinking, and I do think exams are uh, pretty, they're the least worst way we currently have to do it, I think, in terms of them being relatively fair and relatively standardizable and through statistical measures you can hopefully make some accommodations for students who have uh, different starting points or different needs but uh, they are of course quite troubling in, in, in that of course what are you testing in the exam are you testing their knowledge are you testing their ability to apply their knowledge or are you testing their ability to read and understand a written paper and as it was reported a, a couple of years ago the reading level required in science and GCSE was considerably higher than the reading level required in English. Um, so it does risk excluding people who have perhaps the potential to do better. Um, I do like the idea of perhaps like a viva. I mean, I did, I, I had some, um, in, in my degree, I had a viva for, for my exam, as part of my exam. So we talked about ideas in, in science. Um, and, and I think that's possible, but of course you, we've got to think about the, the feasibility of it to, to conduct those ads. But they, they do do it in MFL, they have an oral exam and they seem to manage to make it work. Um, I think those are great ideas. I also, I was a beneficiary in my time of, of the coursework system, which meant I could, I could get stuck into some really interesting projects in maths and science and have that form part of my, part of my grade, or at least I think they form part of my grade. Um, we know coursework is, of course, troubling and and tends to be something that favours certain areas of the cohort. But if that could be reformed in a way that was fair, I think that could be really intriguing as an idea. Um, and then when my, my um, collaborators and I sort of built Taskmine, we did have this sort of pipe dream that a system like this that does ongoing assessment could form part of a transcript of the student's level of knowledge and achievement over the course of several years. Now, I'm not saying Taskmine would be the answer to this, but a system that that formalizes students' knowledge, uh, uh, formalizes the testing of students' knowledge over time and builds a transcript, I think, could be a fairer way of, of assessing things so that it doesn't all focus on the terminal exam. So kind of a proportion of the assessment being, you know, as you go along as it were, but obviously within the, uh, I guess, the caveat of it being, yeah, f- fair and equitable for those t- to access that. Um, well, it absolutely has to be. But uh, in America, of course, they have, uh, and in many systems, they have systems of sort of, uh, um, ongoing grade point averages that, that are assessed through the course of, of uh, a, a whole year, academic year or, or, or semester. So um, there, there are models that do work in, in terms of those systems, but um, I'm no expert, I would say. So. There's lots of hope for the future. I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you today, uh, Murray. It's been fascinating talking about both your um, your journey towards you know, making Tasmai, but also your thoughts on EdTech um, and the way things might change for the better, we hope, in the future. Um, and um, best of luck with uh, it and uh, hope to talk to you again sometime. Thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure chatting. Thanks very much for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Murray on this episode. Remember, if you're an Edexcel Science Centre, you can take advantage of the Tassimise Diagnostic Snapshot Report, which is an analytical breakdown to show how well your students are doing in their GCSE course at the moment. It uses Tassimise Adaptive Quizzing Program mapped to the Edexcel specifications. This is an essential tool for planning your limited teaching time this year. Act now, though, as the report is an exclusive to Pearson Edexcel teachers only until the end of 2020. 
head to the news section on the Edexcel qualification website to find out more. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to talk about what you're doing in your school, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to email me at andrew.woods at pearson.com and we can get the conversation started. Until next time, take care.